Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Hello, and welcome to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. In today's episode, I will be interviewing Sam Daly-Harris. He is a man with all kind of advocacy results and wrote the book, Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government, along with working with Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prize laureates and others in the field of world advocacy. But first, I'm Roger Rickard, and this is the podcast dedicated to the art of becoming a more influential advocate. And if you're already an advocate, then this podcast is for you. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. If you're one of these people, then this podcast is for you. And finally, if you're looking to assist an organization by becoming an advocate for them, then this podcast is for you. You see, my goal here is to help you by educating, engaging, and activating you to become a champion for the causes you care about with enthusiasm while providing you with powerful lifelong habits enabling you to become a superior advocate. But first, it's time to introduce you to one of our sponsors for today's episode, Rocket SEO. They provide marketing solutions for any firm looking to dominate their industry on the web, specializing in local business marketing, e-commerce, videography, photography, and podcasting. If you want your online marketing to soar, contact Rocket SEO. Rocket is spelled R-O-K. I-T, R-O-K-I-T. So go to rocketseo.com. Now, let's get started. Well, good afternoon and welcome uh, everyone to the Voices and Advocacy podcast this week. Uh, I told you earlier that I'm really excited about our feature today, which is an interview with a man who has done some incredible work. Please welcome Sam Daly-Harris. Hi, Sam. Hi, great to be with you. Uh, I wanted to give everyone a little bit of a background on Sam. And uh, Sam Daly-Harris founded the Anti-Poverty Lobby Results in 1980 and co-founded the Microcredit Summit Campaign in 1995 with Nobel Peace Prize laureate Mohammed Yunus and the Foundation for International Community Assistance founder, John Hatch. Now, if that weren't enough, uh, and that's pretty big work right there, Sam wrote, Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government. And we're really going to get into that today, which, by the way, according to President Jimmy Carter, He's quoted as saying, provides a roadmap for global involvement in planning a better future. Wow, great quote there. And in 2012, Sam launched the Center for Citizen Empowerment and Transformation to help organizations more deeply engage their supporters and create champions in Congress and the media for their cause. Sound familiar? a lot of what we do here at Voices in Advocacy. He also coached Citizens Climate Lobby its first seven years. We're going to get into that as well. Sam received the Temple Award for Creative Altruism uh, from the Institute of Noetic Sciences, the Caring Award from the Caring Institute, the Innovator Award from the Marriott School at Brigham Young University, the Elliott Black Award, from the American Ethical Union and the Susan M. Davis Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grameen Foundation and delivered the Distinguished Alumni Lecture at the University of Miami in 2015. And according to Ashkoa founder Bill Drayton, 
quote, Sam Daly Harris is one of the certified great social entrepreneurs of the last decades. Welcome, Sam, and wow, what a background. That's great. <laughs> glad, to, glad to have you here with us today. You know, we had a, a brief conversation a couple weeks ago uh, running up to this, uh, this interview that we're doing, and you gave me some fascinating information on your background. And I was sitting here with, with this bio I just read, and I'm wondering, wow, where can a guy like me start with someone who has a background like you? So first of all, if you want to, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about maybe your career or how you got from A to Z with everything that you're doing today? Okay, great. You know, it is a, a kind of uh, odd story, but it, in short, I have a bachelor's degree and master's degree in music. I think most people are thinking, oh, political science or what? No, a bachelor's and master's in music. And I played percussion instruments in the Miami Philharmonic Orchestra in Florida for 12 years. And I taught high school music there. And then 37 years ago, I founded the anti-poverty lobby results. And a lot of times I'm asked, music, poverty lobby, what was the motivation for that change? And when I look back in my life, there are a few experiences that really come to mind that pointed to a potential change in direction. I graduated from high school in 1964 and played timpani in the orchestra at the ceremony. And just before the ceremony, a flute player came back to the percussion section and told me that a high school fraternity brother of mine, a year younger, had died the day before in a tractor trailer accident in Georgia. It was her next door neighbor, so she knew about it before I did. And I always say, I was 17. When I was 17, I thought I had forever. Mortality was an irrelevant concept. But during the mourning period and the funeral, and after the funeral, I went with my friend's younger brother to pick up his report card from the homeroom teacher. It began to dawn on me that maybe I had 17 more minutes or months or years and the questions of purpose started to come up. And we why never I, know our timeline, do we? <laughs> and the why questions, which are critical to this conversation on advocacy. Why am I here? What am I here to do? What's my purpose? Uh, and four years later, 1968, college graduation, June of 68, Robert Kennedy's assassinated right in those days. And it was another one of those, what is this life? What is this death? Why am I here? What am I here to do? No answers, but the questions are getting clearer. Well, and that was quite a turbulent time. I oh, mean, because yeah. just literally less than two months earlier, you had the Martin Luther King assassination. Yes. You had the riots in the streets in the summer of 68. Yes. Uh, quite an influential time period. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, please, please go on. Though, but so, uh, I, again, it's like, why am I here? What am I here to do? No answers, but the questions are getting clearer. Nine years later, I always say I'm a little slow. <laughs> I'm invited to a presentation. This is now 1977, a presentation on ending world hunger. And I go to this thing thinking, well, hunger is inevitable. What do I know? I'm a musician. I mean, it's inevitable because there's no solutions. Because if there were solutions, somebody would have done something by now. So I go to this thing, and it's really obvious right away from the presentation, there's no mystery to growing food or clean water or basic health. I'm not hopeless about the lack of solutions. I'm hopeless about human nature, people. We just never get around to doing the things that can be done. But there's one human nature I have some control over, my own, and my questions, why am I here? What am I here to do? So I get involved in a big way. And this is the end of that story. In 1978 and 79, I spoke to 7,000 high school students on ending world hunger. And before I went into the first classroom, I read some statements from Jimmy Carter's Commission on World Hunger, National Academy of Sciences, Food and Nutrition Study, both calling for the political will 
to end hunger. So I asked 7,000 high school students, what's the name of your member of Congress? I don't want to know if you wrote him. I don't want to know if you met him. Just the name. Out of 7,000 students asked, 200 can answer correctly, just under 3%. 6,800 couldn't tell me. And that was in the 70s, correct? That was the end of the 70s. Yes, exactly. And it was this gap between the calls for the political will to end hunger on the one hand and the lack of basic information on who represented us on Washington on the other, it was out of that gap that results was founded and that my journey from musician to, to activist, and, and you know, I didn't then turn out to be like a fundraiser raising donations from my neighbors, I went to Congress because they called for the political will to end hunger. And I asked high school students, what's the name of your member of Congress? And fewer than 3% could answer correctly. So there's a quote by Buckminster Fuller, the futurist inventor, who said, uh, the things to do are the things that need doing, that you see need to be done, and that no one else seems to see needs to be done. Well, at first, not many other people could see what I was seeing when classroom after classroom, one out of 30, two out of 25, could tell me the name of their member of Congress. Uh, and so that, that quote actually, among others, fueled me for a time that you see need to be done and that no one else seems to see needs to be done. Yeah. and that. And that's quite fascinating. And, and, and to me, the key here that you talked about was, you know, in the 1970s, these teenagers knew 3%. Where would it stand today if you asked the question? And have you recently? Well, he, well, here's the thing. I asked four years ago, I was on a book tour. It was the 20th anniversary edition. Isn't it weird? My book, Reclaiming Our Democracy, is 24 years old. It kind of sounds a little recent. We need to uh, <laughs> reclaim our democracy. I was on a book tour. I spoke on 15 college campuses. I mean, like the, the LBJ School at the University of Texas, Hubert Humphrey Institute, University of Minnesota, Oberlin College. I asked the same question. And out of those 15 campuses, I mean, you know, there might have been 50 in one room and 75 in another and 20 in another. 10% could answer correctly. 90, four years ago, 90% could not. And again, for me, that's the same as the high school numbers, meaning between who's in a high school classroom and who makes it to a college classroom would make a little bit of that difference. Well, and, in my mind. And I got to tell you, in some respects, I think it's even scarier because if you're mentioning the Hubert Humphrey School, if you're mentoring the LBJ School, you're talking about political science and government schools within the university. And if only 10% of them yeah. uh, know, then, you know, we're really in a, in a sad state of affairs from a standpoint of even knowing who. Yeah, but it's the thing about, you know, we study civics for the test, not to use it. Yeah. If we studied it, to use it, then we'd be using it. And if we used it and someone said, who's your congress? Well, you know, I wrote her last month. That, uh, I know who, Bonnie Watson Coleman is my congresswoman in New Jersey where I live, because I use it, not yeah. because I studied it for the test and then I got to forget it. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's really fascinating. So that's what kind of got you into us. That's what got you into uh, helping out with the other organizations uh, and, and working alongside them. So tell me results. That doesn't really tell me anything, but right. you helped found that in 1980. So yes. just a couple of years after you began this kind yep. of process of understanding and that we've got to do something about poverty, yeah. you helped develop results. So tell us a little bit, A, about what results is and how you actually got it there. Right. Well, uh, let me say this one thing. I want to make this distinction for folks. Most nonprofits are 501c3 
right. organizations. And uh, if you make a contribution, it's tax deductible. And they can't do very much lobbying. They can do some, but, you know, 10, 20%, but no more. Well, and to be clear, they can, they can lobby all they want about issues, but they're not at all allowed to do any political activity as a 501c3 right. on the tax status. Yeah. And so at the end of the 70s, I was, in a hung, I was volunteering with the group that I first got involved with, the Hunger Project, and we met every week on Sunday afternoon. And uh, the fourth Sunday of the month, we would end our meeting early and pass out the Bread for the World newsletter, which was a Christian hunger lobby, and we'd write letters to Congress. I moved to Los Angeles in the, end of seven, in the beginning of 80, and uh, I get involved in the uh, an end uh, hunger event, uh, and I meet a couple at this event when it's over. They say we're inspired, but we're frustrated. We don't know what to do. So I said, well, you know, when I lived in Miami not too many months ago, we used to get together and write letters to Congress. And they said, let's do it at our house. And it turned turned out that she happened to have been on a TV show that a friend who also from Miami was also on. Um, and she said, this friend said, I can't come that night. Let's do it at my house the next week. All of a sudden, within two months, I was driving around to six different locations, leading these letter writing meetings. I said, well, this is crazy. Uh, why don't we all get together, do our study together, write our letters together, and you go back and you lead your letter writing. And frankly, they didn't sign up for them to lead it. They signed up for me to lead it. So there was change in some leadership. And then two of the folks moved away to Berkeley to go to school and to Portland, Oregon. And so this is 1983. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. I just want to show you the trial and error of the whole thing. We said, well, okay, we've got three-way dialing. We can connect to other cities. Let's connect Berkeley and Portland, Oregon and the the group of us here in Los Angeles, and we had our first telephone conference call with guest speakers in 1983. And, and it was like 1983, and here we are uh, 33, 34 years later, and results in the groups I work with do this monthly conference call or webinar, and that's one of the important ingredients uh, for the, but it was all trial and error. I don't want to pretend for a second, you know, I, I say in the book, it's a good thing I didn't get on an airplane. Uh, uh, oh, sorry. That's no one said, here's $50,000. What you're doing is really important. Let's get this up and running. Cause if I did, I would have gotten an or airplane gone to Washington to find out how they did it. But I didn't get that 50,000. So we were stuck in Los Angeles with this question, how can we be profoundly effective in Washington from Los Angeles at first? And that was the, that was the seed of the, the trial and error that uh, the next year's... Uh, so what you were really trying to do is you were trying to empower individuals. You were trying, exactly. to, you were trying to empower people that had a passion towards a subject but yeah. had no clue how do we even begin a process of communicating what our passion is to yeah. those elected officials that carry the water, if you will, for that. No clue, including me. Well, so that's I'm, fair enough. You yeah. have the will, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. You discussed earlier. I have the will now to do something. And so I think this is a really important part to to reach out to the people that are listening to this podcast and to really make that point. You don't have to have this background in political science and government and have done work and worked in, in Congress or worked in your state legislature or done anything like that. All you have to do is have the will and the fortitude of that will to be able to say, hey, where do we go next? And, and, and this might be I want to kind of interject something here because you and I talked about this. You know, I wrote a pocket guide called the seven actions of highly effective advocates. I've talked to, I talk an awful lot about it on the podcast, but those seven actions are first, you got to believe. So, you know, in a sense, you got to have that will right up front. Hey, 
I think what I'm doing or what I can do can make a difference. And second is, is to get informed. So you had to go from the will on your part and to start becoming more informed, A, about the topics so that you had facts and figures to back it up. Then you started to gather people together and you started to discuss the issues. And you had those kind of in-home gatherings. Then you said, well, we got to do something about this. So what do we do next? We get on the record. So let's write our members of Congress and let's tell them what we think and feel about that. And then you start, what happens next is you start to become a resource. You volunteer for things, you get involved and you contribute. And people freak out when I say the contribute part, but it's not necessarily cash. You know, yeah, I'd like the $50,000 that you mentioned, but it's, hey, what can I contribute in other ways? Can I contribute my time? Can I contribute other goods and services? Can I contribute who my contacts are so that we can expand the pie and make the pie bigger? We don't necessarily need to slice the pie smaller. We just need to bake a bigger pie. And so, so with that, so I kind of gave you the list of, of those actions. What do you really think is the most important thing that a person's got to do when they want to do this? Well, oversimplified, I'm going to say what it is, and then I'm going to say a quote that points to why it is. Okay. Oversimplified, you need to connect with an organization that feeds you, that you'll know if you feel like you're somewhere near kindergarten or first grade as an advocate, you'll know whether that organization kind of gets you to second and third and fifth grade. Are are these my peeps? Uh, Am I spiritually fulfilled by Yeah. Am am I growing really? Uh, Is this feeding me? And so I'm going to just start with this quote, which is the why of what I just said. Francis Moore LePay wrote Diet for a Small Planet more than 40 years ago, but in a more recent book, Getting a Grip 2, she wrote, Uh, Our real problem is not a heating planet or rampant malnutrition. We only have one real problem, our own feelings of powerlessness to manifest the solutions right in front of our noses. And so um, you have to find an organization that has a strong enough structure of support to dissolve the powerlessness. Because if you connect with an organization and they send you mouse clicks, they send you online alerts, and you just don't feel much stronger than when you started, you'll know. You can be honest about whether you're getting really fed. And I don't mean just fed with info, but with empowerment. So oversimplify the most important thing that a citizen can do is find an organization that feeds them as an advocate. So, and I totally agree with that. I mean, they, they need to feel like they're, they're a part of the group. They need to feel that what they're doing matters. They need to understand the actions that they take on how it matters, not just the factoids, if you will, of here's our argument. You know, hey, we have, uh, we have listed our, our goals and objectives here, and here's our argument, now go out and do this. Um, and I, I do find, and I think that you make a really good point where you say, you know, yeah, listen, sign up for the alerts. Hey, here's, here's what you should tweet. Oh, here, here, do this automatic email blast. Uh, one, I don't know that it's very fulfilling. And if it is, it's, okay, it's more of a task. Okay, I did what they asked me to do, check. And I, I marked that off the list. You know, hey, I participated, but did it really engage them? Did yeah. it make them want to, to make that commitment? Because <clears throat> this is hard. It is hard work to try to change because people don't want to change, even if they know it's the right thing to do. Yeah, let me throw this in. Uh, uh, Hari Han is a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And she has a book out about, in a sense, the difference between mobilizing, getting the numbers, you might say, and organizing. Right. And she kind of says that mobilizing is transactional. 
uh, send this email, sign this petition. Uh, or, uh, organizing is transformational. So if the relationship I have with the organization is just transactional, do this task, transaction, uh, that's one thing. If the relationship with the organization is transformational, then I'm changing as a result of being part of the organization. Well, I think that's another way of looking at what we're talking no, I th- about. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that it's, 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 it's like the difference between a, a, a movement that kind of lights the spark and a movement that catches fire. You know, it's okay to get somebody out to show up once. Yeah. But yeah. now what do we do? Right. And now right. what do we do if the action that we wanted them to do didn't happen right away? Yeah. So what's the long-term fight? I mean, you, you take somebody when, and, and this will kind of tie in, I think, with the climate uh, that we're going to get into here in a second. Yeah. Is you take somebody like an Al Gore who's not given up on how he's trying to not only himself push for the knowledge of what's going on with our climate, but also going out and now trying to empower a lot of people to carry that message because one person cannot carry messages. It has to be a movement. It has to be structural in that there's a way to do that. So before I actually go into the climate stuff, I wanted to really talk about the center, the center for citizen empowerment and transformation. And I think that'll tie into what the work you've done with the, the citizen climate lobby. So, so you began this, what, about six, five, six years ago, That's 2012, right. something yeah. like that. And so in that one, one sentence statement, what is the Center for Citizen Empowerment and Transformation about? Well, it coaches nonprofits in training their members to create champions in Congress and the media for their cause. That's what we do. And um, I'm kind of going to go back for a second. Oversimplified, if you were a nonprofit organization, um, I basically have three areas of emphasis. One is uh, the structure of support. In other words, if there are 30 in the room and 15 raise their hand at the end and say, I'm in, I love what you're doing, I want to do this, I'm in, in what? What did the volunteer just promise to the organization? And what did the organization promise to the volunteers? Is the structure of support apologetic and sort of wonky? Or is the structure of support aspirational and inspiring and empowering? So, uh, so that's one piece. The second piece is the enrollment into the structure of support. So when I was starting results, Eastern and Delta Airlines used to offer 21 flights for $649. If you did them in 21 days, it was about 35 bucks a flight. So I would take a leave from substitute teaching for three weeks and go on the road to 21 cities starting these chapters of results. That's the enrollment into it. So if you have a great monthly webinar and it's just dazzling but nobody said they'd be on it what difference does it make that's right powerful structure of support a powerful enrollment into it and then the third ingredient oversimplified is um uh the focus in other words i say to an organization if you take 12 different online actions a year i've talked to one that takes 100 I said, don't stop, keep doing that. But with this deeper advocacy section, you need to focus. You need to allow volunteers to go deeper on the issue so they'll feel confident and competent to pick up the phone and call the editor or pick up the phone and call the scheduler and not go with the the, uh, supposition that, oh no, no, we wanna keep it interesting for the volunteers so we'll change the issue every two months to keep it in. No, no, no. If people have a job and a family and other responsibilities, that just makes them crazy, changing it every two months. Correct. It doesn't make it interesting. Focus will help people feel confident. And How confident. do you stay the course? 
Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and I think what you just hit upon is something that happens with me where I get invited an awful lot to speak to associations and talk about advocacy. And, and I try to help educate and engage people in the advocacy process so that they become activated in it. And the one of the most frustrating things for me is it's kind of like, Oh, well, we had the advocacy speaker, so we can mark that off of the list of things that we've done, and now everybody should be ready to go. And in fact, you know, uh, <laughs> it goes well, back to the feeding thing. Yeah, well, let me go okay, back. You fed them something, but you didn't teach them how to feed yeah. themselves. Let me give you another quote that uh, bolsters what you just said. Uh, Lawrence Lessig, the Harvard yeah, professor absolutely. working on campaign finance issues, he said, we did a poll and found that 96% of Americans want money out of politics. But 91% said it isn't possible. That's the politics of resignation. But the politics of resignation gives you a way forward. If we can find a way to thaw the resignation, we can find a way to winning. And so what my Center for Citizen Empowerment and Transformation does is work with groups to create structures of support that are powerful enough to thaw the resignation. So that really falls right into one of the things I did want to discuss was in our divided political climate today, how do we break the perception, A, that no matter what we as a citizen say or do, nothing's going to matter. And B, how do we get better cooperation? Any clue to those? Well, I, you know, again, I think I'll jump over to, I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Citizens Climate Lobby. Yeah. I started coaching CCL three months before they were launched in 07. And I coached them for seven years. And they started from nothing. I mean, they had no list, nothing. Their founder had seen an inconvenient truth three times in 10 days. He went to Nashville to learn to do the slideshow. He went home to San Diego and he led it 43 times. And early on, he said, I'm giving people 98% the problem and 2% what they could do about it. And they can't buy enough Priuses or change enough light bulbs to make up for what the government is or isn't doing. And he asked me to coach him. He was a volunteer in results for 15 years. He asked me to coach him in starting Citizens Climate Lobby. He had nothing except for his will, his passion. He had some resources, some funding to get it going, but no lists at all kind of thing. Well, uh, how, how shall I say this going to your bipartisan? They have enrolled first a Democrat and a Republican to create a Climate Solutions Caucus. And today, in mid-July uh, 2017, there are 24 Republicans and 24 Democrats who are on the Climate Solutions Caucus. Uh, there was a recent vote in Congress a few days ago to strip out uh, a report that the military would be doing on climate change and how it's affecting the military. And there were like 42 Republicans who voted against stripping it out and letting the military. Well, three years ago, you couldn't have found one Republican to join the caucus or to vote in this way on this, uh, on this other vote. It's small steps, but it's real. People say, Oh, well, you know, they're just on a caucus. It does. Well, we'll see if it doesn't add up to anything. And, and I think we're, we're close to a tipping point. I think, the, I think the American public in general is getting to the point where they're getting really frustrated. And at the time of this uh, recording, I mean, literally last night and this morning, the, you know, the Senate's health care bill totally fell apart because it was all one-sided. And, uh, and they weren't be able to get that. One of the things that I... I love to talk about when people say, I'm really scared about the fact that we're not trying to be bipartisan. Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia is a, is a Democrat, and he loves 
He has a houseboat and he loves to go houseboating. And he has a rule. And that rule is entirely adhered to that when he takes that houseboat out, there have to be an equal number of Republicans on the boat as Democrats, and it has to be totally even, or the boat won't go. So if a Democrat comes to him and says, I'd love to get on the boat, great, you have to find a Republican friend and bring them, or you're not allowed on the boat. Well, that's what they say with the House Climate Solutions Caucus. Yeah. Well, by two. The 24 to 24. And, no. you know, and, no. and, and I think that we're starting to see more of that. And I think that we're going to see a little bit more of that. I think that uh, it's going to take some time. But it's also going to have to take the will of people to demand that there needs to be that. Uh, our rhetoric is, is, is really heated up. And uh, when, I, when I recently spoke, I asked the question, uh, do you believe we're in a divided government? And I asked that in a, in a card that I put on their table. And I asked them before I even start speaking, fill this out, say yes or no, whether you think and, and what you think the solution. And the solutions are, you know, more conversation, more dialogue, more interaction uh, between the parties. But just like you maybe weren't shocked when you were asking the question, who's your congressman? Uh, who represents you in Congress? I was not shocked to find that 94% of the people believe that we're absolutely in a divided government. And then I asked the follow-up question, do you want us to be in a divided government? And it's almost split 50-50. Some do. Some want us to go ahead because they don't want us to mess with anything else. Yeah. We're divided and we can't get anything done, then you can't do me any more harm, which is a real cynical look at things. Yeah. Let me tell you this story uh, from, oh my gosh, uh, a long time ago, like 35 years ago. Um, it's, uh, mid, it's like 1985 uh, and results. There's the famine raging in Ethiopia, and a group's congressman in Atlanta, Georgia, votes against famine aid for starving Ethiopians. And the, the guy who's telling the story says, if watching your member of Congress was like watching a sports team, we'd be sitting in the stands with paper bags over our heads. We're so ashamed having him for a congressman. And we talked to him about another person in results in Houston who had a similar problem with his member of Congress. And he'd written this prayer for his congressman. I can't read it to you because I did a speaking event and sold all the books I had, so I can't read it. But paraphrase the prayer, they would read at each meeting. It went something like, thank you, God, for Pat Swindoll. We know he's a good man who wants to do right in the world. We know we have the same challenges that he does. We're the same as he is. It's a longer prayer. At the end of the prayer, he said, at first, we would read this prayer, uh, and they go, yeah, right, that chance. But they would read this prayer that would say, you know, he just wants to do good in the world, and he screws up, and we screw up, and help us find a way. After a while, it began to sink in, and they would go to his town hall meetings. He called them chat with Pat sessions. They renamed them spat with Pat sessions, because <laughs> most people came with a bone to pick, and it was, ended up in a fight. But they'd come with a smile and a handshake and tell them about some intervention that could save money and save lives uh, kind of thing. And two years later, they go into his office with a TV and VCR to show him a video on the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh making microloans to the very poor. At the end, they ask him to co-sponsor some legislation. He says, I'd be delighted to co-sponsor it. In fact, I've got a column in the local paper. I think we need to educate my constituents. Do you think you could help me write a piece for my column? Of course we could. He said, they said, we were the only lobby group in Georgia, this is the mid-80s, who could get liberal John Lewis and conservative Pat Swindoll on the same bill. It's great to see people as opportunities rather than obstacles. And that's one little glimpse into do I want to feel right about how much of a jerk my congressman is? Or do I want to have a transformation? We have to choose. Well, and that's, and that's what I discuss 
in, in the seven actions about being a resource. Members of Congress know a little about a lot yep. because of all the issues that are brought before them. And, and they work hard and they spend a lot of hours of the day meeting with people and having their staff meet with people and do the write-up and, and have all that information in front of them. And it's really incredibly difficult for them to know enough to want to have the will yeah. to go against what may be perceived notions. And by being a resource, by saying, hey, sure, we will help. We'll help you write that. We'll put that together for you. We'll give you some talking points for that. When I do, uh, when I work with organizations and help them with their legislative fly-ins, I tell them to make sure that instead of giving them a physical packet that they don't have the room to keep in Congress, I tell them, let me, after the meeting, let me email this to you. And I'm going to email it to you in a Word document, not a PDF. Because in the Word document, I want to make it easy for you to cut and paste and put that into speeches, put that into op-eds, put that into editorials that you may write. Uh, anything that you want to do, put it on the floor, discuss it while you're uh, you know, in committee or whatever. We want to give you every resource possible to use our work. And if we're not doing that correctly enough for you, please reach out to us. Yeah, we will, we will get that for you. And it is amazing the number of staff people that we meet with that say, I wish everybody would do it that way. Having the electronic storage is so much easier for them than the physical storage. And it gives them the opportunity to be able to easily insert those into the brief that they give the member of yeah. who they met with. So yeah. there's just uh Hey, there's a little helpful, yeah. helpful tip for anybody on, on, yeah. The, uh, yeah. on the air here uh, to do that. So, why is this work so important to you? Well, I think it, uh, in the final analysis, um, we all want our lives to matter. We all want to make a difference. And that's like covered over with some resignation, some powerlessness and discouragement. But underneath all that cover over is a desire to make a difference, to have our lives contribute. And so I'm in touch with it and found some methods to make that happen. And so that's it. There's a quote that I've used for three decades from the late Republican Senator Mark Hatfield of Oregon, mm -hmm. who said, and this is a hunger context, but it's a message for all of us. We stand by as children starved by the millions because we lack the will to eliminate hunger. Yet we have found the will to develop missiles capable of flying over the polar cap and landing within a few hundred feet of their target. This is not innovation. It is a profound distortion of humanity's purpose on earth. End of quote. So that whole notion of not only humanity having a purpose on earth, but we all have our own, in a sense, purpose on earth. Our individual distinctive yeah. humanity yeah. with that. So what I are to people, you're in this room now out of your commitment to correct that distortion. That's right. Of humanity's purpose on earth. Yeah. So what are the major challenges you see yourself and your center facing in the future? Well, I mean, to be quite frank about it, my center, oh, let, me, let, let me tell you what the challenge is and tell you a story that demonstrates it. Uh, most nonprofits are pretty, ha anyone that do advocacy are pretty happy with the online activism. You don't have to talk to anybody. You don't have to get rejected. You can check how many opened it, how many clicked through. And so my challenge is, uh, the low esteem for which many nonprofits hold their members. Let me give you an example. I was talking well, to Well, not only hold their members, but let me... Their but staff. Also, their, but hold advocacy. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, advocacy, Congress, their members. Something's broken or all of it's broken. Right. I was talking to the lead organizer from a major organization 
that everyone would recognize. And this organizers with, you know, many, many, many hundreds of thousands of uh, donors and whatever, uh, and they do advocacy. He said, we can't have our members write letters to the editor or op-eds because they'll get it wrong and misrepresent the organization. I said, well, yeah, if you give them a kindergarten curriculum and then ask them to write a letter to the editor, they will get it wrong. But if you give them something richer than that, they won't get it wrong. He said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. We have 15 media staff at head office. They do the media. I said, well, sure, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Who's working with the Salt Lake Tribune and the Miami Herald where Congress is? They're not working with them. And, and let me give you an example. Citizens Climate Lobby volunteers in the first six months of 2017 had 2,028 letters, op-eds, and editorials published. You don't get 2,028 op-eds, letters, and editorials published by even 15 media staff, especially all around the country, especially by people who will then send it to their member of Congress to make sure they, they read it kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of wacky. Well, world. that is. that. I think that's one of the great challenges of the future is that politics and governing and the ability to govern is still one-on-one -on -one direct interaction relationships. Yeah. And, and it still comes down to all that. And it comes down to the trust of who you have uh, with your people. Yeah. And, and you don't get that through online. Yeah. You yeah. don't get that. While tools are great to help us, uh, actuate it well tools are great for help us yeah. uh, to be able to understand who's out there but why can't we and why shouldn't we be using those kind of tools to help those people become even more yeah. engaged yeah. and do more rather than tell them and slap their hand essentially and say we don't want you to do that because we don't trust you we mm -hmm. only trust you to do this yeah we don't trust you to do that yeah. Yeah, because yeah. that's too important. Let me give you uh, the title uh, to a talk about well, two titles I've been doing lately. One is um, writing checks, signing petitions, and protest marches. Is that all there is? And the second I did this talk and I said, I think I have a new title for this talk. It's are shouting and silence the only two options? Bringing bipartisanship and transformation to political activism. Are shouting and silence the only two options? Bringing bipartisanship and transformation to political activism. And I think that this is all part of that. I mean, for me to say to you, you'll get it wrong and misrepresent is not bringing bipartisanship or transformation from transformation from you've never written a letter to the editor before and you don't know how to do it or what to say to now you do kind of thing. I, I love this quote from a volunteer from Iowa in Friends Committee on National Legislation, a Quaker lobby that I coach, FCNL. She said, when I wrote that first letter to the editor, I was so nervous. I was in a, out of my comfort zone. I was hoping no one I knew would read it if it was published in case I got it wrong. Since then, I've had four published. Four published. Uh, it's who I am now. I can't wait to look for what to do next. That's the transformation from, you know, I hope nobody reads it because I'm afraid I got it wrong, to I can't wait to do it again. So people that uh, listen to this podcast uh, and know me and know me well know that uh, uh, Boy, the synergies between what you do and what I do are are so uh, simpatico, if you will, uh, that it, it's almost like we're brothers from a different mother mm -hmm. uh, in this. Because one of the one of the uh, topics or titles of a uh, a talk that I do is called "Elephants Don't Bite and Donkeys Don't Kick." And, and the reason that I use that is that the, the two symbols of the political parties, 
people are afraid of them. They're afraid to go meet them face to face. They think that they'll get talked down to. They'll, they think that they will be uh, made fun of, that they don't know enough about the information. Right. Well, they know much more about their subject matter than that member of Congress. And that member of Congress needs them and wants them to talk to them and to have a good dialogue back and forth. So that fits into yours. Is it shouting or is it silence? No, let's have a dialogue. Let's have a conversation. You know, you tell me why you're against what I'm for. And I'll tell you why I'm for what you're against. And so how can we begin this knowledge of finding somewhere in the middle where we can move to, to be able to solve things? Yeah. So then the absolute follow-up to my question about what you're worried about in the future, what are you excited about in the future? I mean, I'm an old teacher for starters (laughs) and there's nothing better for an old teacher or a new one is seeing the light bulbs go off, you know, not seeing the people falling asleep, but seeing the light bulbs go off. And so, you know, it's just, it's everywhere. Well, that's the rewarding part, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you don't mind, I would love to give the websites for some yeah. of groups so people could just check it out. Like Results has chapters focused on global poverty and domestic poverty. And you could go check it out at results.org. Correct. Citizens Climate Lobby, it's obvious what they work on. They have 400 chapters around the country. Citizens, plural, citizensclimatelobby.org. I work with the Quaker lobby. They're working on reducing the Pentagon budget where President Trump's asked to increase it by 54 billion. And they're at uh, fcnl.org. Uh, I work with American Promise and they're working uh, to overturn Citizens United and the whole issue of money out of politics and corporations aren't people and uh, money isn't speech kind of stuff. And they're AmericanPromise.net. Um, and they have just new chapters. They have about 10 all around the country, and they're just starting them. I work with Generation 180, uh, generation180.org, and they're actually not a lobby advocacy group. They're an education. that They want to bring a, 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 a accelerate um, uh, energy awareness and clean energy adoption uh, kind of thing. And so those are examples of the kinds of groups that I'm working with. And also the American Wind Energy Association, they've got Power of Wind Action Teams at awea.org. But uh, each one of these, the AWEA, they're having their first conference call in August. First, results probably having its, I don't know what, 300th and something conference call. Uh, Citizens Climate Lobby has one to 2,000 on their monthly conference call with a thousand more listening to the recording. Uh, American Promise, two, two months ago, they had Congressman um, uh, from Maryland, uh, who's uh, just a freshman in Congress. Uh, last month, they had a Congressman uh, Jim McGovern. This month, they had Francis Morla Pay, the author that I had mentioned earlier, as their conference call guests. And so, you know, I urge people to find a network, an organization that has these conference calls and webinars and groups so you're not just jumping in alone on the phone, but you're with five others or 10 others, or in some of these cases, 35 others uh, on their monthly conference call. So they can learn more about you by going to Citizen Empowerment and transformation.org. Yes. And I want to make sure that we give you a, a, a shout out for the book and you can find that I'm sure at any bookstore, Amazon, anything online, but you can also go to reclaimingourdemocracy.org and uh, that'll tell you an awful lot more about Sam. When we began this conversation today, before we actually uh, started the recording of this interview, we said, well, how long is this interview going to last? And we said, well, we don't really know. Is it going to be 20 minutes? Is it going to be 30 minutes? 
And I said, well, let's just go. And Sam agreed with the same thing. And I think that you could find that we could talk about this an awful lot and for a long, long, long time. I want to deeply thank uh, our guest today, Sam Daly-Harris. And uh, I will put those lists of those websites up on the site and the podcast site so that people will be able to go click on those as well. And Sam, do you have one more thing you'd like to add? A quote from Alex Steffen. Optimism is a political act. Those who, uh, those who benefit from the status quo are perfectly happy with a large population of people who believe nothing will get any better. In fact, these days, cynicism is obedience. What's really radical is looking at the magnitude and difficulty of the problems we face and still insisting we can solve those problems. And so I really urge people to find a structure of support that, help, that helps them look at the magnitude and difficulty of the problems we face and still insist we can solve those problems. Well, and you've proved that in your lifetime of beginning as a musician and going through this process of learning how to do this on your own, finding ways to get people engaged, finding ways to inspire them to want to do things. And so I concur with you. I encourage people, go out and find what is passionate to you and use that to help empower that organization to create the change that you want to see. And if you don't find that, then begin it yourself. Do what you want and learn as you go. And there are plenty of resources and great people like Sam Daly-Harris. I thank you so much again, Sam. And this is going to conclude this part of the podcast, but I'll be right back in just a few seconds with the advocacy tip of the week. Now it's time for the advocacy tip of the week. Today's tip is become a resource. Become a resource for elected officials. You see, they don't have the time or the bandwidth to be experts in every single topic. And in fact, they have a small bandwidth of all topics. uh, And you have very specific knowledge about your topic. So whether you are for or against their particular policies, you want them to rely on your knowledge and expertise on your issue. So build this bridge by offering to provide them with raw data, research, survey information, and the ability to interview others within your organization, anything that will assist them in better understanding your issue. In return, politically, it makes them look good when they can speak or legislate intelligently on your issue. And particularly if they have the opportunity to speak to your group of constituents. The more the know, the more they know, the better they will be able to communicate. Your voice magnifies. If you earn your way toward social and political change in your community by being a respected resource. And that's today's advocacy tip of the week. We have another fabulous sponsor of this show, Trekker Leather Company. Whether you're looking for leather journals, sketchbooks, or accessories, you will find high quality premium leather styled by artisan craftsmen. I love the look and feel of my leather journal, and I know you will too. Go to trekkerleather.com. That's T-R-E-K-K-E-R leather.com. These handmade leather goods influenced by the ranchers of the American Southwest make great gifts, which can be personalized and customized for anyone and any occasion. So after the podcast... Go to TrekkerLeather.com to get yours. Tell them Roger sent you. Just a couple of quick announcements here at the end of this episode. 
If you're interested in becoming a guest on my show, please go to voicesandadvocacy.com and click on Contact Us to let us know your interest and why we should have you on the show. I would love to have you contribute your thoughts. In upcoming episodes, you will be treated to great interviews from people that know advocacy, leaders of the world of politics, association, nonprofits, and actively engaged advocates like today's guest. We at Voices in Advocacy work with organizations that want to ensure that their advocates are educated, engaged, and actively supporting your cause. If you have a question or two that you'd like me to address here in the podcast, then send me an email, roger, R-O-G-E-R, at voicesinadvocacy.com. Also, I'd be extremely grateful if you would rate my podcast. That helps tremendously with keeping my podcast visible so that people who have never heard of it can discover it. Just head over to iTunes to subscribe today. Well, that's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Until next time, remember, you have the power to change lives as an effective advocate. So go out and make it a better world. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.